Hey, it's Jake Heath. And it's Helen. And the 2023 Listener Tournament is here. If you registered for our Go Fact Yourself Tournament with a chance to win a slot as a guest on an upcoming show, you should have received information and a link to round one in your email. If you didn't, get in touch with us. Entries are due by August 31st. We've got some more guests to announce for upcoming live audience shows in the Los Angeles area. Yeah, on Saturday, August 12th at 7 p.m. at LAist Crawford Family Forum, we have Alex Borstein versus Ego Wodum. Woohoo! Sunday, August 20th at 7 p.m. at the Center for Inquiry West, Glozell versus Ed Begley Jr. Then on Sunday, September 10th at 7 p.m. at the Center for Inquiry West, Allison Tolman versus Mike Schmidt. Friday, October 6th at 7 p.m. at Barnes & Noble at The Grove, Keegan-Michael Key versus L. Key. And finally, Saturday, December 2nd at 7 p.m. at Elias Crawford Family Forum with guests to be announced. You can get all the latest info on guests and tickets at our website, GoFactYourPod.com. Well, Helen, what if people want to see you outside of the Los Angeles area? Come see me do stand-up. I will be at Hyenas in Dallas, August 25th and 26th. Yay! Hey, let's get to this new episode, Helen. Take it away, Helen Hong, and thank you, yes, I am feeling a little better. Yay! Are you a real know-it-all? Do you annoy your family by shouting the answers while watching Jeopardy? Do you drive people crazy when you start a sentence with, well, actually? Well, guess what? You can go fact yourself. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Go Fact Yourself, the show where we quiz the smartest people we know and find out why they love what they love. I'm Helen Hong. And now, recording remotely from our homes in Los Angeles, here's our moderator, J. Keith Van Stratton. Thank you so much, Helen. Wonderful to see you. Nice to see you, J. Keith. Now, some of our listeners will know that you had to miss a show a few episodes ago because Ugh. you were ill and people have been asking, how are you doing? Are you all better? I am not all better. No. It's unbelievable. These Baby daycare diseases just can't stop, won't stop. So when I missed the show, tragically, I had a like a respiratory infection, which has now become a sinus infection, which is an antibiotic-resistant sinus infection that I've had for four weeks and counting. Oh, no. That's terrible. I used to get sinus infections a few times a year, especially when I was traveling a lot. And yeah, uh, uh, there was nothing to do except take antibiotics. And if I couldn't do that, I don't know what I would have done. I would have just yeah, suffered. I, I took the antibiotics. I took 10 days of antibiotics. I felt sort of better. And then mm -hmm. I stopped the antibiotics and all my symptoms came back. So I have a, a super bug inside my face. Wow. Thank you. Thank Congratulations. you. Congratulations. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> now, uh, have you done the thing where they, uh, have you gotten scans and things where they stick cameras up you and all that stuff? Yes. I uh, got a CT scan of my sinuses and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the very complicated medical term was, you got mucus up there. Yeah. And I was like, wow. <laughs> wow. Thank you. Medicine. How did that thank, get there? Thank you, modern medicine. Yeah. And so I actually have an appointment to see an ear, nose, and throat specialist mm -hmm. tomorrow. Apparently, he's going to stick a camera up my nose, which I don't. It doesn't sound like a fun time. Yeah. Uh, I've done that uh, once before, and I have one recommendation, if I may. Uh, don't watch. <laughs> That's, I know you love seeing yourself on TV, but Helen... <laughs> You know, do not what you in, want. Do what you want. But it, yeah, I, I, did, I, did, I did not enjoy that. Well, I'm sure I speak for all of our listeners when I say good luck with that, and we hope that you uh, find a solution to that. And for Thank now, you. today on Go Fact Yourself, two guests will compete to answer questions about facts they know, facts they may not know, and frankly, facts they should know. 
Plus, we'll meet actual experts on two very different topics. And finally, we'll declare one of our guests the winner of today's show. Let's get started and meet today's guest. Helen, who is up first? She is a number one New York Times bestselling author whose TV writing on Last Week Tonight with John Oliver has won her multiple Emmys and Peabody Awards. It's Jill Twiss. Hello, Jill Twiss. Hello. So wonderful to meet you. Uh, In addition, of course, to Last Week Tonight, people have heard your writing on The Amber Ruffin Show, and you've also published multiple children's picture books, which we'll talk about in a moment. I was very surprised and delighted to learn that not only was Last Week Tonight the first late night writing gig that you got, you actually didn't have an agent at the time. No, I didn't have an agent until six years after I started at Last Week Tonight. Yeah, girl, keep that money. That was exactly it. I was like, first of all, I was like, you wouldn't talk to me before. So now I'm supposed to give you my money. Uh, But I have lovely agents now. Mm -hmm. But however, did you get that gig without an agent? I mean, that's a very competitive gig. It was a series of very weird events that started with a job I had as an SAT tutor. Someone's (laughs) parents worked for David Letterman. And thank goodness that kid did well on the SAT. (laughs) I'm not making this up. I begged her, could I submit a packet? And she said... Sure, you don't want to work there, but sure. And years later, someone asked someone, who do you think should be writing for TV but isn't? And they gave them my name. Um, And I got to submit a packet. Um, It was just an insane, very long series of events. Mm. Now, your first children's book kind of started as a joke on Last Week Tonight, and that was something that you pitched and then actually got to write. For those who don't know, tell us about uh, how Marlon Bundo came to be. When I was writing at Last Week Tonight, I was personally obsessed with the Instagram account of the actual bunny, Marlon Bundo, which mm-hmm. for who people, if they don't know, it's the bunny of Mike Pence, who was the vice president at the time's daughter. One day I got a press release that said that the Pences were writing a book for Marlon Bundo. And I was irrationally angry. (laughs) I was like, I should get to write that book, which is insane because A, I don't own the bunny, and B, I have never written a book. But I wrote up a pitch that said, basically, I should get to write that book. And my boss, John Oliver, said, okay. Um, We had a quick meeting that was just... Should we make it a real children's book or like an adult children's book? And we decided, why not write a real children's book that has heart and, of course, has what Mike Pence would hate the most, which was two gay bunnies getting married. (laughs) I went back and I wrote the book and I thought he's going to look at it and that'll be the end of that. But my boss looked at it and said, great, let's publish that book. Uh, And we did. And it went to number one almost immediately after it was announced on the show. What what was it like to discover that people were buying and loving the book? Not just as a a joke. They really enjoyed it. It was insane. I think we had tried to plan a little bit for what the amount of books might sell. Mm -hmm. And I think it's fair to say we were very, very wrong. Um, (laughs) In the best way. In the best way, yes. They had to print more books. And I should say that all the money for the books went to... Two charities, The Trevor Project and AIDS United. Fantastic. I have a two-year-old Snefew, and I am going out and getting this book immediately for Snefew. <laughs> oh, I love it so much. You've gone on to write some other children's books that teach some wonderful lessons about being in a larger world. Those include The Someone New, which deals actually with immigration. Everyone Gets a Say, which deals with voting. And Major Makes History, which is about the first shelter dog to be in the White House. Uh, do you know what your next uh, children's book project is going to be? 
I do not know. I just want to say that <laughs> the major book came mm -hmm. out just at the time that we found out that Major Biden was biting several yes. members of the <laughs> Yes, I was going to wonder. Is, is it going to be a sequel called like Major Makes Injuries? <laughs> I have so much empathy for Major, who is a dog that moved to a new place and just freaked out. Right. But no, I don't know what my next children's book is going to be. I want to write one. Um, I'm, I'm obsessed with penguins and I very much want to write one about a penguin who has never seen colors. So I think that's where I'm going next. A colorblind penguin? I'm I'm salivating. <laughs> Nephew is going to die. All right. Well, you've already got one book sale. I'm sure that's how it works in selling a book. Uh, excellent. Well, we're so happy that you joined us. Jill Twiss, everybody. Helen, against whom will Jill be competing? He is a comedian who hosts the podcast The Faucet and Broccoli and Ice Cream, and whose new comedy special, Live from the Universe, is available now. It's Mike Kaplan. Hi, Mike. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Now, many people have been introduced to you by the times you got pretty far on two different competition shows on television. One of them was Last Comic Standing. The other was America's Got Talent. What were those experiences like and, and how did they compare? Last Comic Standing was probably the first time that uh, after that, uh, people came to see me because mm. they knew me. Mm. Before that, people were coming to see comedian in brackets, you know, <laughs> like... One time I was performing at a college, I think in the, you know, late 2000s, you know, like pre-2010. Uh, and 2010 is when I did Last Comic Standing. And mm -hmm. I think I was, I remember seeing a big banner at the school that said, free chicken wings and comedian. <laughs> oh, so before that was pre-Last Comic Standing. Yeah. And post-Last Comic Standing, I would rate higher than the chicken wings. <laughs> so, at least it was chicken wings, Mike. I've gotten I've gotten second billing to pizza. Well, I appreciate that, though I also am and have been for the entirety of my comedy career vegan. Look how long I went without telling you. So, uh, now I think I have enough pull to get them to leave it off the sign. But doing Last Comic Standing was a fantastic opportunity. I met so many wonderful comedians, and it was a show that, you know, it was a competition technically, right. but just it was an opportunity for so many comedians to be on primetime television. And like, you know, people like Gary Goleman and Todd Glass and Kathleen Madigan and, mm -hmm. you know, Nikki Glaser and Amy Schumer, like Alonzo so many Bowden. people. Absolutely. Like just it was I'm so glad that it existed and that I got to do it and that I got as far as I did and that it really helped me have the career that I have. And then on America's Got Talent, I was just thrilled enough to be able to make it past various rounds where you're sometimes competing with dogs and <laughs> like children who are cute. Like, am I funnier than that child is cute? So they're weird. It's a strange thing. I'm glad that I don't have to do any other competitions. Happy to be here on this competition podcast. Oh, wait, one more, one last competition for you. This is the one. The be all end all. <laughs> you've got a new show that you're working on now that you're planning on bringing to the Edinburgh Fringe Fest. You've been there before. How do those audiences compare to the U.S. audiences that are just there to see a stand-up show and or get vegan wings? I, 
think similar to doing stand up in the United States, like there are different audiences every night, you right. know, but th there it's they're from potentially all over the world. So yeah. it's it's nice to get the opportunity to find out, uh, you know, nobody's comedy is universal. Like if people don't speak the language that you speak, they right. might not understand the comedy uh, <laughs> unless it's, you know, I don't know, a mime or a Jim Carrey. I feel like <laughs> relate to everyone. Robin Williams for all. But yeah. So yeah, I'm really excited to bring this new show, which is called Imperfect, uh, with a capital I and a capital P. So it also looks like I'm perfect, but in an imperfect way. <laughs> it's about the in my my life, my relationship, and uh, growth as a human being that I have been experiencing and continue to do. For as yet, I am still not all the way there. Maybe I am. I don't know. Who can say? Maybe this is the, the <laughs> well. Let's see how you do. With, let's see how you do in the quiz because that really is the determination <laughs> of someone's self actualization. How they do in a trivia quiz. Yeah. Sounds right. In that show, I've read that part of it is you offering advice to your past self. Uh, can you give an example of advice that uh, you wish you had had when you were younger? Uh, you know, that that is absolutely true. And I don't know if I would have even listened to the advice when I was younger. <laughs> so I guess one, one piece of advice that I would give my past self, that I give my present self uh, as much as possible all the time, is to listen more, to listen more and listen better. I read a book recently called You're Not Listening that my girlfriend recommended to me for oh some boy. reason. Yeah. And, <laughs> and we recommend to everyone, we could all be better listeners, says a man who talks for a living. And <laughs> it's something I'm working on. And as such, I'll leave it there. Excellent. Well, I hear what you're saying, and I thank you. And thank you so much for being here. Mike Kaplan, everyone. Thank you. All right. We ask each of you to provide us with a few topics outside your field of work in which you feel you have some expertise. Jill, you said you know and love the TV show The Good Place, the musical The 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee, and the SATs. Whereas, Mike, you said you know a lot about linguistics, psychedelics, and Spider-Man. Later on, we're going to ask each of you some in-depth trivia questions about one of those topics. But first, we're going to get your thoughts on something you might know nothing about. It's time to split some hairs with our What's the Difference round. We'll have one question for each of you, each worth up to two points. If either of you gives an incorrect or incomplete answer, the other person has a chance to steal. Your topic today, preaching to the choir. First up is Jill with preaching. Jill, while you might find either of them working in front of a choir, what's the difference between a preacher and a pastor? a preacher, and a pastor? I'm going to say that a preacher is primarily Baptist, okay. um, and a pastor comes from the uh, Episcopalian sector. <laughs> the Episcopalian sector. All right. Well, we've got Jill's answer. We don't know yet if she's entirely correct. Mike, uh, if you don't think she's got it just right, you can steal. Anything you want to change or add? I will say that I believe it is a uh, that there's maybe a set-subset relationship. Mm. That preacher is a more general term, which could be applied to to numerous religions or faith traditions, and that a pastor is actually, I would say, a type of a preacher, mm -hmm. and a pastor has specific credentials. Like mm. they, I think that a pastor would have to go to school to become a pastor to get some sort of training or certification, and that a preacher, uh, anybody could become a preacher, and you don't need any specific training. All right. Well, praise the Lord. This segment is almost over. Let's go to Helen Hong at the judges' table for the facts. Here are the facts. A preacher is someone who speaks in front of a crowd, delivering a sermon or teaching a religious lesson. And that's all it takes. If you preach, you're a preacher. 
A pastor can also preach, but also has pastoral duties, whether it's counseling members of the flock, raising money to keep the doors open, or performing administrative duties. Being a pastor is a lot more work than being a preacher. That's right. Now, pastors also tend to stay in one place for a long period of time, while preachers might move from town to town, delivering a sermon in different churches or even in tents. And some of those sermons are really intense, am I right? (laughs) <laughs> Can't believe I said that in front of a Emmy-winning comedy writer. Helen, how did our guest do? Neither of you got it exactly right. Uh, Mike, I'm tempted to give you half a point because you did say pastor has credentials or training or certification, which is not quite correct, but sort of in the vein of doing more than just preaching. So In the spirit of yeah, things, yeah. perhaps. Oh, <laughs> See what you did there. That might give him an extra half point. I don't know, Ellen. <laughs> yeah, so, Mike, I think I'm going to give you half a point for that. All right. I thank you. Half a point for Mike. All right. Up next in Preaching to the Choir is Mike with Choir. Mike, your question comes from a listener. Who is it, Helen? I will let them tell you themselves because we have a listener recording. Listeners, if you'd like to submit a suggestion for our What's the Difference round, go to gofactyourpod.com and click on Get Involved. Okay, play it. Hi, Jay Keith, Helen, and esteemed guests. This is Gary Rowland from Roswell, Georgia. My question for What's the Difference is, while both might accompany a pastor or a preacher, what's the difference between a choir and a chorus? A choir and a chorus. Love the show. Good luck and thanks. All right. Thank you so much, Gary. Mike, you heard him. What is the difference between a choir and a chorus? I have these credentials to uh, help me out here is both of my parents were music teachers when I was growing up. And I have played the violin since I was four years old and actually got into comedy via the guitar. Uh, I was an aspiring singer-songwriter myself. I was a music counselor at a summer camp and I led an a cappella group of young teenagers for several years while I was there. And this is all to say that most of my training is instrumental but uh and and that also up until this point Mm -hmm. i would have said that a chorus and a choir were pretty close to synonymous but i will say that the difference between a chorus and a choir is that a chorus is bigger wow long way to go to get a chorus is bigger but we appreciate that answer and those credentials all right we've got mike's answer don't know yet if he's entirely correct jill anything you'd like to change your ad i'm going to say that the chorus is the generic term and a choir is a more specific subset that has to have a soprano alto tenor bass all right, and that shrug of confidence <laughs> leads us in. <laughs> leads us out of the segment. I said words. You did say words. All right, well, we are required to end this segment. Let's go to uh, Helen Hong at the judges' table for the facts. Ha ha, I see you, Jay Keith. Thank you. Here are the facts A choir is a group of singers, a chorus is a group of singers that might also include dancers and actors, as in the chorus of a Broadway musical or an opera. Choruses date back to ancient Greek drama, where the chorus spoke in unison but also sang and danced. That's right. Many large churches have a special location for the choir called a choir, which is also the name for part of a pipe organ, and when spelled Q-U-I-R-E is also a quantity of printed paper. So, get ready, a member of a choir can sing with a choir 
in a choir, from a choir, accompanied by a choir. And now I must inquire, Helen, how did our guest do? I don't think either one of you got it. I, I'd like to I'd like to just yeah. briefly push back on this distinction because I think mm -hmm. that the definition of chorus as it appears here is mm -hmm. not the kind of chorus that would accompany or would be singing in front of a pastor or in a church if there's acting. Like, I don't think there's ever acting in the chorus in a church. Helen, do I get half a point for not pushing that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm tempted, Jill. <laughs> I'm tempted. Are you moved by Mike's argument? I'm not. I'm okay. sorry. I'm Fair not enough. because uh, it, we're going with technical definitions, dictionary definitions here. Mm -hmm. um, not, uh, not you know, general. Not the way that people how... actually use the words. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Helen, what is our score at the end of that round? At the end of that round, Jill Twist has zero points and Mike Kaplan has half a point. Those scores are bound to change as they move on to questions about topics our guests have chosen for themselves. It's all up ahead when we come back on Go Fact Yourself. Helen, you know, NASA has inspired so many things in our lives, from drink mixes to vacuum cleaners to a good night's sleep. That can't be right. Yes, it is right. Your temperature at night can have one of the greatest impacts on your sleep quality. And inspired by NASA, Miracle Made makes temperature-regulating bedding so you can sleep at the perfect temperature all night long. Oh, right. Miracle Made sheets are luxuriously comfortable without the high price tag of other luxury brands. And they feel as nice, if not nicer, than bed sheets used by some five-star hotels. But what's all this science-y stuff? These sheets are infused with silver that prevent up to 99.7% of bacterial growth, leaving them to stay cleaner and fresher three times longer than other sheets. No more gross odors. Yes, gross odors are gross. <laughs> Helen, the fine people at Miracle Made were kind enough to send me a set of Miracle Made sheets. And I have to tell you, I put them on for the first week and I liked them so much. And then we changed our sheets just as you do in a household to our other regular set of sheets. And I missed my Miracle Made sheets. I was like, when are we getting the Miracle Made sheets back on? And it turns out I'm allowed to make the bed as well. So uh, that's the answer <laughs> when I put them back on. <laughs> Miracle Made was also nice enough to send me a set and I was struck by how soft they are. Right? My goodness. They are just like, uh, like butter. Like butter these sheets are. Helen, how can people get these buttery sheets? Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash go fact. If you order today, you can save over 40%. And if you use our promo code go fact at checkout, you'll get three free towels and save an extra 20%. Miracle is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you aren't 100% satisfied, you'll get a full refund. Again, that's trymiracle.com slash go fact to treat yourself to a free towel set and over 40% off. Thank you, NASA. And thank, thank you, you, Miracle, Miracle Maid. Hi, everyone. I'm Laura House. And I'm Annabelle Gerwich, and sometimes it feels like the whole world is a dumpster fire. Right? There's too much to worry about. That's why we make Tiny Victories. It's a 15-minute podcast where we celebrate our minor accomplishments and fleeting joys. And listeners call in, like Valerie, who found the perfect gift for her daughter's boyfriend, and Adam, who finally turned his couch cushion the right way. And little happinesses, like how birdsong helps your brain. That's science. 
So join us in not freaking out for 15 minutes a week. That's Tiny Victories with Annabelle and Laura, Mondays on Maximum Fun. It's a tiny victory just to make a network promo. Honestly. Welcome back to Go Fact Yourself with our guests, Jill Twiss and Mike Kaplan. Once again, here's J. Keith Van Stratton. Thank you so much, Helen. All right, Jill, of your many interests, you told us that you know and love the TV show The Good Place, the musical The 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee, and the SATs. Let's find out a little bit more about each of those. First, tell us what The Good Place means to you. The Good Place came out in 2016, which was either... 400 years ago or like 30 (laughs) seconds ago. I honestly don't know. And The Good Place was a show about my greatest fantasy, which is that people that are bad want to get better. (laughs) Uh, Um, I remember those days. (laughs) I think it got me through some times. Fantasy indeed. (laughs) All right, next, tell us what the musical The 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee means to you. Okay, first of all, I love musicals. Mm -hmm. And second of all, I love spelling bees. Um, I actually write for the National Spelling Bee every year. So it's, those are my two favorite things. Um, Wait, wait, you write for the National Spelling Bee? Meaning you write um, questions? do like you write um i write sentences i write funny sentences for uh you know when they say can you use this in a mm-hmm. sentence uh they can and sometimes it's funny oh my god i didn't know that was a job and now <laughs> i need to do this job <laughs> yeah are you hiring jill not yet but that's exactly how i got the job i said i didn't know that this was a job but let me email them very um, cool so oh yeah so if you love musicals and you love spelling bees this is the show for you this is for me and it was a show that i saw i think three times Times in a time when I could not afford to see a Broadway <laughs> show. And I think it also just taught me that there were like joke jokes. Mm. As a person who loves comedy, um, I was super excited to see a show that had the kind of jokes that I love. Oh, neat. All right. And then finally, tell us why you know and love the SATs. When I first moved to New York City, I tried to wait tables because that's what I thought you do. And I was so bad at it. <laughs> Um, that in order to fund what would eventually be my comedy writing career, I had to get a job tutoring standardized tests. Ah. And I taught the LSATs and I taught the SATs and it took a real long time for me to make a living as a comedy writer. So I taught the SATs for like eight or nine years. Wow. That is such a funny and fun um, nerd origin story. (laughs) I really thought I was going to be a waiter in New York, and I cannot tell you how much I could not do it. (laughs) Why were you so bad at being a waiter? I was a great Midwestern waiter. In Mm. Custer, South Dakota, where my family is, I was great because you don't have to get things right. You just be really nice. (laughs) And they sort of tip you based on, like, would this girl ever be able to get another job? (laughs) Can I say I love that you're like, for eight or nine years, I just was grinding, teaching for the SATs. But finally, I don't have to do that anymore. And I work for the spelling bee. <laughs> you know what? Everybody has a different dream, Mike. <laughs> All right. Well, to summarize, Jill, you said you know and love the TV show The Good Place, the musical The 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee, and the SATs. Today, we're going to quiz you about... 
the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. Excellent. Now I understand in addition to seeing it, you actually were in a production. Yes, I was in a summer stock production of this show in which I'm not making this up. Our musical director snuck out in the middle of the night uh, and left. <laughs> wow. What? <laughs> because they had a better gig or they weren't, uh, they didn't want to be associated with it anymore or... Honestly, I think the score was really hard to play. Ah, okay. They weren't, yes, they weren't no, good he at was it. A, he was a great piano player in the Midwest. Oh, I, <laughs> <laughs> Bless his heart. Uh, what, what role did you play in the show? I played Logan. Uh-huh. Oh, that's a fun, juicy role, huh? And they're all fun, juicy roles. Yeah. But she was a role that got to say a different monologue every night. So it was my first accidental foray into the world of comedy writing. Oh, interesting. Well, just ahead, we're going to enlist the help of a bona fide expert in your topic with an expert level question worth up to three points. But before that, to let you show your love, here are five trivia questions about the topic, each worth one point. If you want it, you're allowed to hint for any two of these five questions. Now, Mike, do listen closely because if Jill answers incorrectly, you can steal. Mike, by the way, how much do you know about the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee musical? Well, like Jill, I also love musicals mm -hmm. and I also love spelling bees. Oh. And unlike Jill, yeah. I do not know anything about this. Oh, movie. okay. We were so close. We were so close. All right. Well, we'll see if Jill gives you that opportunity. Jill, here is question number one. Many people in the original production of Spelling Bee have gone on to great acclaim, including an actor who won a Tony just last year for his performance in Take Me Out. Who is this actor who is probably best known for playing Mitchell on Modern Family? Is it Jesse Tyler Ferguson? Helen? That is correct. That is correct for the point. Very good. Fun fact, the director of that Broadway production, James Lapine, can be heard as the expert on the topic of Sunday in the Park with George on episode 100 of Go Fact Yourself. Jesse Tyler Ferguson can be heard on the audiobook of A Day in the Life of Marlon Bundo, written by Jill Twiss. <laughs> Yay. Here's question number two. There are lots of great characters in the show with great names, including Leaf Coney Bear, Chip Tolentino, William Barfy, sorry, Barfay, and Marcy Park. There's also another character who has been around for over 2,000 years and appears when Marcy asks for a different word to spell. Who is that character? Oh my goodness, it is, I believe, Jesus Christ. Helen? That is correct. That is correct. She believes in Jesus Christ, and that is the answer. <laughs> Hold on, I don't believe, <laughs> I, believe <laughs> I believe in the musical, Jesus Christ. Okay, great. <laughs> All right. Fun fact, Jesus appears when Marcy says, Dear Jesus, can't you come up with a harder word than that? And he does. All right, Jill, you are two for two. Here's question number three. Like all good spelling bees, contestants in this show are competing for a prize provided by the local sponsors, the Putnam Optometrists. It's $200 toward the winner's future education, but it's not in cash or check. In what form is this prize given? Can I have a hint? Helen, how about that first hint? According to NerdWallet, this financial instrument is a loan to the U.S. government that's issued by the U.S. Treasury. Is it a savings bond? Helen? It is a savings it bond. It is a savings bond. Very nice. You are three for three. Fun fact, a $200 Series EE savings bond purchased when the show opened in April of 2005 would be worth today $142.64. Oh, geez. <laughs> Economics, everyone. Economics. Here's question number four, Jill. The show famously involved audience members as participants in the spelling bee. And in New York, it was not uncommon for those audience members to be celebrities. For the show's performance on the Tony Awards telecast, where it won two awards, what celebrity participated? Okay, I think I watched this. I'm going to say 
200 times. I believe it was Al Sharpton. (laughs) Ellen? That is correct. It was the 200th time that did it. Yes, fun fact. Al Sharpton's word was dengue, as in dengue fever, which he spelled D-A-K-N-I-A. Not correct. Julie Andrews appeared on a kids' night performance of the show where she misspelled supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, <laughs> which just seems perfect as well as mean. All right, Jill, very nice. You have a chance to go five for five. If you can get this question correct, you do still have a hint available. Nearly 20 years after its first workshop performances, the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee was in the news just a few months ago when an Ohio school board canceled a production of the show due to what the superintendent called vulgarity. The board reversed the decision, though, after the show's creators heard about the cancellation and agreed to make some of the changes the board requested. One of those edits was changing the phrase, good lord, to what? Uh... I'm just going to guess here, but maybe a hint. I would like a hint. Helen, how about that second hint? It made it sound a lot more like another musical. You're a good man, Charlie Brown. Was it Good Grief? Helen? That is correct. That is correct. (laughs) Jill Twist is five for five. Very, very nice. Fun fact, there were over 20 specific edits requested from that school board, many of which were agreed to. Among edits, the creators would not change the lyric, I'm not that smart, in the song called, I'm not that smart. Ah. I can't imagine why they didn't want to change that one. All right, Jill, you obviously did very well in that round, but now here is your expert-level question that requires multiple answers. It is time for your cluster fact. We'll be bringing on an expert to discuss your response. Jill, the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee's Genesis was with an improv troupe called The Farm, some of whose members went with the show all the way to Broadway. For up to three points, when it was first performed by The Farm, what was the title of the show, which was the correct spelling of the word crepuscule? Next, what member of The Farm originated the role that became Olive and directed some early productions? And what other member of The Farm originated, well, your role of Logan and continued to play her on Broadway? Oh my goodness. Was the first question essentially spelled crepuscule? It pretty much is, yes. We needed something for our audience to uh, latch on to. (laughs) Really excited that I bragged about writing for the spelling bee. Um, Well, to be fair, you didn't didn't brag about spelling for the spelling bee, right? I never do. Okay, let's try it. I'm going to say C-R-E-P-U-S-C-U-L-E, crepuscule. All right. We can't tell you yet if you're correct, but we'll we'll take note of that. Oh, what's the second question? No worries. Well, what member of the farm originated the role that became Olive and directed some early productions? And then what other member of the farm originated the role of Logan and continued to play her on Broadway? Wait, I have a name that's coming to my head. I don't okay. know where it's coming from. Okay. I'm just going to say it. I'm going to say Rebecca Feldman. Okay. Don't know why or where that name came from. All right. And then the last one is the person who played Logan, mm-hmm. who I believe is named Sarah Salzberg. Okay. Well, Helen is taking note of those answers. We have an expert on hand who can tell us for sure. In fact, we have two. Helen, who do we have tonight? Joining us tonight are two members from The Farm who originated the roles that became Olive and Logan in the 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee. It's Rebecca Feldman and Sarah Salzberg. Oh, my God. <laughs> Yeah, this is the best day of my life. <laughs> <laughs> hello, Rebecca. Hi. And hello, Sarah. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for making this uh, the best day of Bill's life. <laughs> thank you for having us. Yes, we're so happy to be here. Excellent. Uh, we have so much to talk about, um, but I, I kind of want to get back to the beginning. How did you two end up meeting in the first place? Sarah went to college. She went to BU with my sister, Liz. 
we were both in New York doing theater. I wanted to make up a show from scratch with some improv actors and Sarah was one of them and uh, she jumped on board and, and never jumped off, which was great. <laughs> That's right. And Sarah, I understand uh, that you two uh, still hang out. In fact, I believe uh, one of you referred to the other as your bestie. We're very, very close. I'm very close with Liz. Liz, Rebecca's sister I lived with for many years. And actually, when, when Rebecca reached out to me, I'd been doing improv, but one of my survival jobs was similarly tutoring. I was, and I was teaching improv acting um, at <laughs> PS6 on the Upper East Side. And Logan was based on a little boy, one of my students. Oh, wow. And by the way, uh, the Liz Feldman you're talking about, is that the creator of Dead to Me, Liz Feldman? Yes. That is. Oh, she, she's she been a guest yes. on our show. Oh. <laughs> Liz, Liz is an old pal. I had no idea. Excellent. Well, Rebecca, you're very close with one of the members of the cast. Yeah. Jay Reese, who originated the vice principal panch role, uh, is my husband. And Sarah, there you go. I, I believe Sarah was on the phone with him. For an hour this, this morning. morning. Yes. We talked oh, about the go. time. And I understand uh, Celia Keenan-Bolger, who was the original Olive on Broadway, was actually just uh, at your home yesterday. Yes. Well, Celia's son is best friends with my son. So oh. they're together all the time. You guys keep it real incestuous over oh, there. Oh, yeah, boy. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rebecca, I'm so interested in the genesis of the show because when it was first conceived, it actually was not a musical. It was a play with music. Mm -hmm. We had a few songs in, in there written by the late Michael Friedman. Mm -hmm. um, and But it wasn't a full musical. And it was, it was a bonkers <laughs> show. The whole thing was basically improv and then... There were some weird, like, abstract dance <laughs> dance numbers in it, and uh, it was bizarre. Uh, but it was very fun, and the audiences seemed to love it. And Sarah, you were sort of instrumental in connecting with who eventually became the person who wrote the music and lyrics for the show, William Finn. Tell us that crazy story. So in addition to teaching improv at PS6 and waitressing, you know, I was... <laughs> I was a very intense waitress. <laughs> I, I was also a nanny, a weekend nanny for Wendy Wasserstein. And she was in incredibly generous and she came to see the show. And I just, I, I, you know, there's no fourth wall in spelling bee. I watched her the entire time. And mm. I was like, oh, is she liking it? Is she not liking it? And the first thing she said to me after the show was, that is an incredible show, but it can't end with luck be a lady tonight. <laughs> yeah, it has like a full original score. And that's why she won the Pulitzer for drama. That's right. That's yeah. right. She knows her stuff. So she put us in touch with Bill and eventually James. And what was so lovely about this was that the, the three of them had been friends for a very, very long time. And she said to me many times that it was so special to have this group of friends that had been friends for so long ushering this mm. new group of artistic friends into oh, wow. this world, which was really accurate. And now we have all been friends for decades, which is so nice. Very cool. Rebecca, we mentioned that uh, you originated the role that became Olive, but it was not Olive when you were playing it. Tell us about what that role was and uh, why you ended up not being a performer in the show. The role was Beth Margulies, and she was basically my inner 11-year-old. And nobody wants to spend a hundred or so dollars to hear me sing. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> and so 
with respect to Beth Margulies, we changed her name to Olive Ostrovsky. Sarah, you, of course, played Logan, the role that Jill played in her uh, regional production. Uh, what, uh, when you talk to people uh, who have taken on the role since, what, what, what do you tell them about sort of the key to playing that role? Well, I think the key for most of the characters in the show um, is to think about, you know, what what the what the chaos of childhood was like for you at that time. You know, um, that we talk a lot about what are the central themes of the show. And I think for those of us that were in the room creating it, you know, there's things about competition and winning and all of those things. But so much of it is really about sort of the darkness and the chaos and mm. the stakes of childhood. And um, I see it with my own kids now, you know, like, and when I would go back and read my diaries, there was one entry that I found that was like, oh, today was a terrible day. I stepped in dog do again. <laughs> Um, everything you know and so so I think back to that time when I was you know 10 years old and what you know it everything felt so important when you were 10 years old or 11 years old or 12 years old what what were those things for you and did your musical director flee the production at any point (laughs) he may have wanted to but uh, (laughs) if I may I think that as an adult if I step in dog do, that is still important. <laughs> yeah. Especially again. Again. Yeah. <laughs> As we've talked about, the, the show had this wonderful improvisational both origin and also element in its final production, which was so unlike anything else that we've seen on Broadway at the time. Um, were there any particularly memorable moments that happened because of bringing in audience members and not knowing what to expect on any given night? We learned early on that we had to, if we had chosen people to be audience volunteers, we had to watch what they were drinking because there was a there was a bar. Aww. We had definitely got a few intoxicated people on stage. And we also really tried to make sure that the people that were the audience volunteers had not seen the show before. Ah. Because sometimes ah. they would get up on stage and just start mouthing singing along, oh, <laughs> or it was like, oh, this is really killing the vibe. Uh, yeah. um, Audience members, am I right? Oh. <laughs> Last thing I want to ask you both, you both are doing things now that are sort of related to what you were doing at Spelling Bee, but in a different way. Uh, Sarah, tell us about the success you found in a different field that you actually started while you were doing the show. So I am in real estate, and I actually got into real estate before when we were doing Crepostule because I was trying to raise money for the show. And I really loved doing it. And so I own a firm now in Manhattan called Bohemia Realty Group. And many of the agents here have a background in the arts. So it's a very, the green room of real estate, it's been called. <laughs> very cool. So you, you would uh, have a show on Broadway and then go uptown, show uh, yes. property, and then come back and do the evening performance. What? That's right. That's right. I love it. I love it. That is dedication. And Rebecca, uh, you're still doing something with the show now. Tell us about this TV project you're developing. Well, Jay Reese and I are developing a Spelling Bee game show. Fantastic. I don't know if you know, but I I enjoy game shows. So do we. Um, And yeah, so hopefully it will be on a network near you at some point, maybe in 2024. Awesome. That's very exciting. All right. Well, let's get to the reason we brought you here as far as our game is concerned. You heard the questions that we asked of Jill. First, we want to know what was the original title of the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee, which is, in fact, the correct spelling of the word crepuscule. Helen, what did Jill say? Jill said C-R-E. 
P-U-S-C-U-L-E. And? That is correct. Got it right. Very nice, Jill. (laughs) That is a point. That's amazing. All right. Very good, Jill. Next, we want to know what member of the farm originated the role that became Olive and directed some of the early productions. Helen, what did Jill say? Jill said, a name just came to her, and the name was Rebecca Feldman. And? That is correct. That is correct. Very good. That is her. Uh, Another point. And finally, wanted to know what other member of the farm originated the role of Logan and continued to play her on Broadway. Helen, what did Jill say? Jill said Sarah Salzberg. And Sarah Salzberg? That is correct. That is correct. A perfect game from Jill Twist. Very, very nice. Oh, my gosh. This couldn't be better. And a spelling bee game show might happen. I Again, best day of my life. I thought it was already the best day of my life. And then it got a little better. <laughs> Can I just quickly say something to Jill? Please. We were just watching the National Spelling Bee. And, you know, we, we've been aware that they've been, the sentences have been funnier in the, in you know, in the past several years and jay and i were like who do you think writes those sentences i really want to know like who writes those sentences and i cannot believe that now i am now looking at the person who writes those (laughs) sentences i don't want to out this person it was a thing where i had just gotten hired at last week tonight and all of a sudden i had all this nerve and i was like why don't you just ask for the jobs you want joe (laughs) Um, And so I emailed them, but it's me and it's actually a Simpsons writer, um, the other writer. Although this year they did not use comedy writers, but they still had some of our sentences from previous years. Wow. And Sarah, I understand you're also, you are also very familiar with Jill's work as a writer. Yes. Your Marlon Bundo is, (laughs) I literally know that book by heart. I have two little boys and we read it all the time. Oh, that delights me. I didn't. I don't have children. I didn't have children when I wrote it, but I now realize that I've written the line, you you are not in charge for children to yell at their parents. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, uh, Jill, while we have Sarah and Rebecca here, anything else you'd like to ask or say to them? Uh, Rebecca, I want to say that uh, it turns out your family is responsible for two of my favorite shows in the world. So thank you. Thank you to your family. Um, and then maybe this is a question for both of you. I'm not sure. A huge sort of thing I admired about Spelling Bee was that there was a monologue in it that got rewritten, you know, on a regular basis, which is something that just doesn't happen on Broadway. Um, And it was so exciting to me as a comedy writer to, like, see the work and see it getting written. Where did that idea come up? And were there hurdles to being able to do it when the show went to Broadway? Surprisingly, no. We worked, I, I would write those monologues and I would sometimes write them with Jay actually um, and try them out in the rehearsals and in the previews. And then they just let us do it. I mean, mm. <laughs> and then as the run kept going, it was like, I, I would sometimes do, sometimes I would do one like every single night. Sometimes I would do one and it would last for a week and a half. Really just depended what was like the top of the news. But then we actually, you know, when it when we had the production in San Francisco and we started having productions in other places, found that it was like able to be replicated. Like it, it didn't, you know, it didn't depend just on me or Jay writing it, that mm. they were like, oh, this is replicatable. And it and it worked and it's been able to work. Awesome. Well, it was so wonderful to have both of you. If people want to find out more about you and what you're up to. Uh, Rebecca, where can they do that for you? Rebecca Feldman dot me. 
Um, that, yeah, let's leave it at that. We'll leave it at that. All right. And Sarah yeah. Salzberg? I would just say, g- give me a Google. Give her, <laughs> give her the old Google. Why yeah. not? We're certainly happy that you gave us your time today. Everyone, it's Rebecca Feldman and Sarah Salzberg. Thank you so much again. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Helen, what is our score at the end of that round? At the end of that round, Jill Twist has eight points and Mike Kaplan has half a point with a round of questions for Mike coming up. That's right. We're going to talk with Mike about a topic he knows about. Plus, later, Jill and Mike will go head-to-head in our Fast Facts round, all to find a winner on Go Fact Yourself. Okay, Helen, it's time to talk about Soylent. Soylent? You mean the original food tech company that makes delicious and nutritious nutrition products in convenient formats? As a matter of fact, I do mean that one. (laughs) Well, Helen, I know that you've tried some of these fantastic Soylent products, and uh, they sent us some talking points. And I thought it would be fun we could run by some of those talking points and see if your experience with Soylent matches up with what they suggested we could say. Let's do it. All right. First, they want us to say that it's the quickest, easiest meal on the planet. No cooking, no cleanup. Check and check. All right, complete balanced nutrition made from U.S.-grown, sustainable-sourced ingredients, making this good for you and good for the planet. Check. All right, what about loving the rich and creamy, chocolatey goodness of their best-selling, nutrient-packed complete meal? Yes, that one is good. Oh, yeah, that's that Soylent Complete Meal Shake. Uh, Oh, they want us to say that it's perfect for breakfast, lunch, or any time you need a nutritious meal that's delicious. Absolutely. What about that it's healthy fast food with no drive-thru required? Definitely better for you than... A literal fast food restaurant. What about if you hate to cook, there's no worries because you've got a complete meal in a bottle. Yes, that's true. Okay, how about no time, no problem, open, drink, nourish, move on. All of that and move on. And finally, salads aren't the only way to balance your nutrition. Is that true? That is absolutely true. You can do shakes, powders, energy drinks, and even the Soylent Squared Bar. All right, Helen, you've somehow surprisingly convinced me. How do people get Soylent? <laughs> go to Soylent.com slash GoFact and use code GoFact to get 20% off your first order. That's Soylent, S-O-Y-L-E-N-T, dot com slash GoFact and use code GoFact for 20% off your first order. And that's why we say thank, thank you, Soylent. Are you tired of being picked on for only wanting to talk about your cat at parties? Do you feel as though your friends don't understand the depth of love you have for your guinea pig? When you look around a room of people, do you wonder if they know sloths only have to eat one leaf a month? Have you ever dumped someone for saying they're just not an animal person? Us too. She's Alexis B. Preston. She's Ella McLeod. And we host Comfort Creatures, the show where you can't talk about your pets too much. Animal trivia is our love language. And dragons are just as real as dinosaurs. Tune in to Comfort Creatures every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Welcome back to Go Fact Yourself with our guests, Jill Twiss and Mike Kaplan. Once again, here's J. Keith Van Stratton. Thank you so much, Helen. All right, Mike, of your many interests, you told us that you know and love linguistics, psychedelics, and Spider-Man. Let's find out a little bit more about each of those. First, Mike, tell us why you know and love linguistics. I currently have a master's degree in linguistics, which I got after minoring in linguistics in college, which I got because... When I first, I'd never heard of linguistics until I got to college. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I never felt like 
as sort of seen or heard or, you know, understood as when I'm like, oh, there's people dedicating their lives to studying languages and how they work and, you know, what words mean and what sounds they're made of. And the language spoke to me and I <laughs> speak the language. So <laughs> your stand up really reflects that, Mike. It, you know, that really comes through in your stand up. Your stand up is very language based. Thank you, Helen. Uh, thank you for listening and noticing and uh, and saying it. I, I really appreciate it. All right. Well, tell us what your interest in psychedelics involves. I was raised in a home with parents that were like, don't do drugs. And I was like, my parents seem to know what they're talking about. So I didn't. Uh, like, I didn't smoke pot until I was in my 20s and I didn't love it. But then I was at a music festival and I performed and somebody bought a CD and paid with a 10 dollar bill wrapped around a mushroom stem and <laughs> what that is amazing it was and i tried it and it if you've never done a psychedelic it's hard to describe what a psychedelic experience is like the same way that if you've never uh eaten a kiwi and somebody's like well describe to me what a kiwi tastes mm. like like you could use as many words as you want but eventually you're gonna be right. like you should probably just have a kiwi and then <laughs> then you'll get it i enjoy you know consciousness i enjoy mm -hmm. uh you know like learning and experiencing new things and psychedelics are something that uh, have been a, a great portal to that very interesting I'm, I'm very interested and curious in uh in trying some of that myself so perhaps i'll i'll uh you know, perhaps I'll, I'll sell a CD for uh, $10 in, the, in a mushroom. That's how you do it forever. That's how you get however we, it's, it, it's a comedy is the gateway to psychedelics. Oh, yeah. And then finally, Mike, tell us why you know and love Spider-Man. Since I was a child, I've been uh, reading comic books. I think Spider-Man has been, you know, it's one of my longest relationships. I don't remember a time when I wasn't familiar with Spider-Man, like back to probably, I remember being in pre-K, like in my nursery school, and I was playing with a friend of mine. I remember we would like play pretend being like he was spider-man and i was hulk or vice versa and so like from the earliest i can remember i knew and loved spider-man and now they just they keep making movies and they keep making <laughs> the comics and i haven't read every spider-man comic there is but i think hmm. i've read more than most people i love them yeah i never took that off ramp from archie comics that was that was the only comic sure. that i stayed with so it's interesting that you uh you went to that well to summarize mike you said you know and love linguistics psychedelics and spider-man today we're going to quiz you about Spider-Man. Wow. Now, there are different eras of Spider-Man, I am to understand. Is there a favorite of yours? I have a great fondness for, like, in the 90s when I think it was, like, Todd McFarlane was drawing Spider-Man and Eric mm -hmm. Larson is one of my favorite comics creators and he was writing, I think, and drawing Spider-Man for a time. And so I do fondly remember that era. But also, I think there's a cornucopia these days. We're in, like, this, mm. you know, utopian uh, and utopian slash dystopian world where everything <laughs> <laughs> is available. I'll say now. Big fan now. of the now Spider-Man. Yeah. Anyone who found high school the favorite time of their life cannot be trusted. <laughs> All right, Mike, just ahead, we're going to enlist the help of a bona fide expert in your topic with a question worth up to three points. But before that, to let you show your love, here are five trivia questions about it, each worth one point. If you want it, you're allowed to hint for any two of these five questions. Now, Jill, do listen closely because if Mike answers incorrectly, you could steal. By the way, Jill, how much do you know about Spider-Man? I have never read a Spider-Man comic or seen a Spider-Man movie. Mm -hmm. But I did read a book about the Spider-Man musical. Nice. Okay, so uh, <laughs> so if, if, there's, <laughs> if there's an opportunity to turn off the dark, you will be ready to jump in. 
All right, here's question number one. Mike, Spider-Man was created in the early 1960s. The shared credit for his creation is sometimes given to Steve Ditko, sometimes given to Jack Kirby, but always given to and gladly taken by what man who was Marvel's then editor-in-chief? Stan Lee. Helen? That is correct. That is correct. Mike is on the board with a point there. Fun fact, Stan Lee famously made cameos in many of the Spider-Man films, and for 2021's Spider-Man No Way Home, the VFX team paid tribute to him by using his birthday as the number of a taxi cab on the iconic bridge fight scene. Hmm. Bruce Campbell, by the way, also appears in many Spider-Man movies, and he appeared on episode 110 of Go Fact Yourself. All right, Mike, here's question number two. From the first one in 2002 to the one that came out just a few days ago in 2023, every performer who has played Aunt May in a Spider-Man feature film has been nominated for an Oscar. Not for playing Aunt May, but still, yes. <laughs> now, two of those actors have won Oscars, and one of them has won two Oscars in 1980 and 1985. Which Aunt May actor is this double Oscar winner? I know that Marisa Tomei played Aunt May, but I mm -hmm. don't know if she won. I know she won one for... My cousin Vinny, I think, but I don't feel like that was that early. And 1980 and 1985. Yeah. Uh, I think I'm going to ask for a hint on this one. Okay. How about that first hint, Helen? We like her. We really like her. Uh, you know, I really appreciate all the additional effort that you went into there, <laughs> but I'm sad to report that most of my Spider-Man knowledge is more literature-based than ah. cinematic, and so I'm going to say, even though I doubt it's correct, mm -hmm. Marissa Tomei. <laughs> Helen, is it Marissa Tomei? It is not Marissa Tomei. No, I'm terribly sorry, Mike. Jill, with a chance to steal. I'm going to say Sally Field. Helen? That is correct. That is correct. Yes, it was ah, Sally Field. Good work, Successful Jill. steal for Jill. Yes, very gracious of Mike. Uh, fun fact, Sally Field won her Oscars for Norma Ray and Places in the Heart. Rosemary Harris, who played Aunt May as well, was nominated for Tom and Viv. Lily Tomlin was nominated for Nashville. And as you said, Mike, Marissa Tomei won for My Cousin Vinny. All right, here's question number three. Let's see if you can bounce back. While his first title comic was The Amazing Spider-Man in 1963, there have since been many titles of Spider-Man published by Marvel or its partners. But which of the following is not one of them? Is it The Astounding Spider-Man, The Astonishing Spider-Man, The Sensational Spider-Man, The Spectacular Spider-Man, or The Superior Spider-Man? I believe that The Astounding Spider-Man is not one of them. Helen? That is correct. There we go. We're back in gear. Very nice. Fun fact, there is a fan-written comic called The Astounding Spider-Man, as well as what seems to be an unauthorized short film listed on IMDb. Superior Spider-Man wasn't actually Spider-Man, but was Dr. Octopus, who had switched minds with Spider-Man and then made him get his doctoral degree, <laughs> which is what you do usually when you try to switch minds with somebody. An evil All right, genius, Mike. yes. Yes. Here's question number four. As we record this, the newest Spider-Man movie across the Spider-Verse just had its opening weekend. The movie features a lot of firsts, including the first film appearance of the character Pavitar Prabhakar, an Indian version of Spider-Man that I probably mispronounced. That character lives in what fictional city? Mumbatan. Helen? That is correct. That is correct. A combination of Mumbai and Manhattan. Very nice. Uh, in the comics, Pavitar Pavarkar, sorry, first appears in Spider-Man India, number one. His name kind of sounds like Peter Parker, although not when I say it. All right, very good job, Mike. Here's question number five. You still have a hint available. 
Spider-Man wasn't just a hero to kids. He was also a hero to companies who wanted to advertise to kids. One such advertiser was Hostess, who placed several comic ads in the Spider-Man books where Spidey would just happen to use a Hostess treat to save the day. In one story called The Champ, Spidey saves boxer Aldo Moomjay when he was down for the count in an unfair fight in the ring. How did Spidey use a Hostess cupcake to save the day? My goodness, that is uh, certainly a deep cut beyond the purview of my immediate knowledge. Um, I'm going to ask for that hint, please. Helen, how about that second hint? The referee never got past one, two. Uh, Did Spider-Man shove the Hostess product into the referee's mouth? Helen? That is correct. That is exactly correct, yes. He shoved a cupcake in his mouth so he could not complete the knockout count. Very nice. Fun fact, many of the hostess ads involve Spider-Man distracting his enemies with cupcakes and fruit pies. The one had him weighing down Demolition Derby's hat weapon with Twinkies, allowing Spidey easily to subdue the criminal. (laughs) All right, you did quite well in that, Mike, but now here is your expert-level question that requires multiple answers. It is time for your cluster fact. We'll be bringing on an expert to discuss your response. Spider-Man's existence is both enriched and complicated by the women in his life, from Aunt May to Gwen Stacy to Mary Jane Watson to the Black Cat, his sometimes nemesis, sometimes love interest. For up to three points, what is the Black Cat's alter ego? What injury does Spider-Man sustain when she causes a wall to fall on him in her first issue in 1979? And what writer and editor co-created the Black Cat with artists Keith Pollard and Dave Cockrum? Her alter ego is Felicia Hardy. Okay. The injury that he sustained when she dropped a wall on him, I'm going to say broken ribs. uh, Broken ribs? That's a shot in the dark for sure. And uh, I'll say that the editor is Tom DeFalco. Tom DeFalco. All right. Helen is taking note of those answers. We have an expert on hand who can tell us for sure. Helen, who do we have tonight? Joining us tonight is a legendary and award-winning comics writer and editor whose many accomplishments include creating the character of Black Cat (laughs) in Spider-Man. It's Marv Wolfman. Uh, Hello, Marv Wolfman. Hello, Marv Wolfman. (laughs) Hi. So wonderful that you joined us. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Well, Marv, my goodness, we'll talk about Spider-Man specifically in a moment. But for our listeners, just to understand, you were an editor-in-chief at Marvel. You've written for animation, plus for thousands of comics, including Tomb of Dracula, Superman, Batman, Green Lantern, Fantastic Four, Daredevil, and Wonder Woman. You've created or co-created characters, including the new Teen Titans, Blade, Bullseye, Phantasm, Nova, Nightwing, and Vigilante. You've won the Inkpot Award, three Eagle Awards, two Jack Kirby Awards, and have been inducted into the Eisner Hall of Fame. Not too shabby. And that's why I'm so tired. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was it was good work that got you there. I was curious to find out that of all of the thousands of comics that you've written for, uh, you found Fantastic Four to be your favorite? No, Fantastic Four was my favorite comic as a reader. Oh, as a reader, okay. As a writer, mm-hmm. I actually had the most problems with the Fantastic Four. Oh, tell us about that. They're my favorite characters in terms of Marvel Comics at that time. Spider-Man was number one. Mm-hmm. Fantastic Four was two. But as a book... Fantastic Four was fabulous, but it's a very, very tricky set of characters to to work out as time goes by because there's a lot of very weird things that go place in the uh, that happen in the Fantastic Four that aren't easy to bring up to date. 
So it took me quite a while to learn how to write that character. Spider-Man, I, I was able to do right away. Oh, interesting. Well, let's, let's talk about that. Uh, you wrote around 20 issues of Spider-Man back in that era. How much of what you wrote do you actually remember when people talk to you about it? I remember basically the stuff, but I don't remember specific stories in Spider-Man mm -hmm. because I was trying to figure out how to handle the character. Right. So I was worried about how to tell the stories. I didn't want to be the guy who screwed it up. <laughs> so I really had to figure out how Spider-Man worked and what you had to do to make him work. So I was really concerned about that more than necessarily the little problems along the way. Sure. So was there a particular key that unlocked that for you that you realized, aha, that's how you write for Spider-Man? When you realize that Peter Parker cannot succeed, that every time he's so close to victory, he falls back mm. and fails that's where you begin with Spider-Man. It seemed that a lot of what your acclaim from that time was was that you focused on Spider-Man's personal relationships. Uh, you, right. you famously had him propose to Mary Jane. Uh, you had him meet this character, Black Cat. Um, how did you approach weaving these romantic stories into the action of these comic books? My view has always been as a writer that by the time you've read comics for two years, you've read every mm -hmm. fight scene. <laughs> you've read pretty much all of that stuff. So the only thing of real interest that changes constantly are characters. Mm. You have to make the characters stronger. You have to make the characters work. You have to find the things that the characters love. And then you have to find the things that the characters are afraid of or hate. Mm. Stan and Steve Ditko really concentrated on the character of Peter Parker and all the secondary characters in that book. And I was trying to follow Stan. So where did the idea of Black Cat and her alter ego come from? Well, I've mentioned this a lot of times that most people don't believe it. Mm -hmm. There's an old cartoon by Tex Avery called Bad Luck Blackie about a black cat who causes bad luck. And I'm watching the cartoon. Tex Avery is one of the best animation directors ever. And I go, this could be a real villain. This could be a real character. And made the black cat, created the black cat. What was interesting about the Black Cat, too, was it was the very first female villain that Spider-Man fought in all the years that he had been published mm. before then. Wow. And that was about 20 years up to that point. Yeah. Wow. And uh, you've also kind of essentially recreated some classic characters as well. I know you're famous for what you've done with Lex Luthor. Tell us about the approach that you took with changing that character in a way that really opened up the stories for Superman comics more. Well, as I say, I've been reading comics since the 1950s, and every time you saw Lex... He was in a gray suit in prison. Mm -hmm. And then he would somehow take out a weapon that he hid in his teeth or something, <laughs> break, create a giant robot and would break out of prison. And then he'd have a fight with Superman and Superman would beat up the robot <laughs> and destroy it and take Luther back to prison. I'm going, if Luther could create a giant robot who could do that, why is he bothering to commit crimes? He'd make more money. He'd make more money designing giant robots who are deadly. You know, he could sell them to the military and stuff. So my view was that let's get rid of all that. Let's get rid of that nonsense. Let him be a businessman. Let him be a genius scientist still. But he was so smart, Superman could never figure out mm. what he was doing or how he was going to commit a crime or whatever. He was smarter than Superman. Superman never had to worry about being super intelligent. Mm. He had all of his powers. <laughs> Luther's powers were that he was the smartest man on the planet. You made him a capitalist, the ultimate evil. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> yes, I did. And because business, he could be legal. Mm. And so in between the business stuff, he could be doing all the uh, 
all the bad stuff, but you, uh, he's just, so smart you can't figure it out. Just like our current capitalists. You were yeah, really on the forefront, uh, ahead of the game uh, of the hating the evil billionaire. <laughs> yeah, I always believe in that. <laughs> <laughs> it's been said that second to Stan Lee, you maybe have created more characters that have been seen in TVs and movies and toys and animation than anyone else. Um, I'm curious, are, are, are there any characters that uh, you helped create that you were surprised caught on or maybe surprised didn't catch on? I was surprised at how much people really love the Deathstroke character. Because mm. I didn't think... I love the character, mm -hmm. and I think he's one of the more nuanced villains that are out there. But I didn't think that's the sort of nuance that I gave him. Married, kids, a lot of different things like that, that would go over with the readers. Mm. But they embraced him more than I possibly could have expected. And because I loved the character, I was thrilled. And on the flip side, was there a character that you thought, well, this one's going to be in all of the lunchboxes and didn't quite make it there? Yeah, I created one for uh, Daredevil when I was writing Daredevil called The Torpedo. And I really thought he would take off and nobody was interested. Aww. So after about the second appearance, I just never used him again. <laughs> sometimes they win, sometimes Thanks, you win, sometimes you don't. Yes, very good. And then last thing I want to ask you about, um, your name is Marv Wolfman, which sounds like a comic book name. <laughs> it's It seems like you were destined to do what you do. No, I think they named comic book characters after me, not the oh, other that, Oh, is that what it was? Okay, very good. <laughs> but uh, I understand that um, that being your real name led in a roundabout way to writers getting credits in comics. Can you mind telling that story? It's a funny one because Back in the 1960s, when I broke into comics, I started in 1967 as a comic writer. When you were writing books like House of Mystery and House of Secrets, which were little sort of semi-horror books, mm -hmm. as, uh, uh, if you want to call them that, nobody ever got credit. But what these, the way they worked was three different stories in an issue, and you had a host character who would introduce each story mm -hmm. to the reader. So you'd have an eight-page story, but first the host would lead you to it. So the host character, because they knew that I wrote the story that was coming up, Jerry Conway, who wrote those interstitial pages, wrote the following story, was told to me by a wandering wolfman. He, it was a joke. Mm -hmm. It was sent to the comics code, as you had to do back then. And they said, you can't use that, you can't use that because we are not allowing werewolves or vampires or any of those in the comics. And DC said, that's his name. <laughs> it's truly his name. And they said, well, then you're going to have to put a credit line on it. And once I got the credit line on it, all the other writers <laughs> wanted it as well. Wow. That is so cool. It's because your name was so cool. You changed the whole industry. <laughs> What's interesting is you can't see it. But right over there is the page of artwork from the page that has the Marv Wolfman credit for the first time. Oh, wow. I, I hung wow. it up on my wall and it's always been there. And what was it like to see your name in print on a comic for the first time? Really cool. Yeah, I can see really cool. I can see a huge smile on your face now. <laughs> Still thinking about it. All right, well, let's get to the reason we brought you here as far as our game is concerned. You heard the questions that we asked of Mike. First, we wanted to know, in reference to the Black Cat, what is the Black Cat's alter ego? Helen, what did Mike say? Mike said Felicia Hardy. And Marv? Thumbs up. Yes, thumbs up. That is correct for the point. Very nice, Mike. Next, we wanted to know, what injury does Spider-Man sustain when she causes a wall to fall on him in her first issue from 1979? Helen, what did Mike say? Mike said broken ribs. And Marv? Dislocated arm. Yes. Sorry. Ah. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> sorry about that, Mike. I understand. Yes. I'm I'm sorry that I didn't retain it. No, that's all right. Well, uh, Mike, you're not the only one. Marv, do you mind my telling him that we had to remind you of that fact the other day? 
<laughs> it's only been 50 years since I wrote it. I can't possibly imagine why I couldn't remember. Yes, hopefully that makes you feel better, Mike. It sure does. And finally, we wanted to know what writer and editor co-created The Black Cat with artists Keith Pollard and Dave Cockrum. Helen, what did Mike say? Mike said Tom DeFalco. And Marv? Mike is wrong again. Oh. Why do you take so much joy in saying that, I'm wondering? <laughs> Marv, my apologies. Uh, I'm sorry, but uh, it is a great honor. I have read so many comics with your name on them Thank that you. I now know uh, wouldn't have existed uh, without you. Uh, I mean, I knew that they wouldn't, but I didn't even know that your name wouldn't have been on them without you. <laughs> so uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And uh, Mike, is there anything else you'd like to ask or say to Marv while we have him here? Marv, are you working on things still? Are you writing? Are you creating? What are you up to? I just signed a contract to do a graphic novel. Can't say what it is, mm. but uh, it's a graphic novel. It'll be a couple hundred pages. Wow. So I'm really looking forward to uh, getting to work on it. Excellent. Amazing. And one, one final question. If listeners out there don't know that they've read your work or haven't yet read your work, what what comics would you direct them to as a good place to start as an in, an entryway to your work? Great question. If you're a Marvel fan, Tomb of Dracula, mm-hmm. Marvel has published several hardcover editions. So you could find the entire 63 issues I wrote published there. That's probably the first uh, major success that I had. At DC, either New Teen Titans or Crisis on Infinite Earths as well as my Superman stories. Excellent. Great question. Great answers. A lot to absorb if you're trying to uh, be a Marv Wolfman completist. We thank you so much for joining us. If people want to find out more about your work and what you're up to, where can they do that? MarvWolfman.com. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. What an honor. Marv Wolfman, everybody. Take care. Awesome. All right, Helen, what is our score as we head into the final round? At the end of that round, Jill Twiss has nine points and Mike Kaplan has five and a half points. All right, now it is time for our final round we call Fast Facts. I'll read 10 statements and each contestant will answer with true or false. I'll start with Jill and alternate between each guest. Each correct answer is worth one point. Again, please answer each statement with true or false. Here we begin. Jill, there's a Nobel Prize for economics. True. Correct. Mike, there's a Nobel Prize for cookbooks. False. Correct. Jill, a Nobel Prize winning economist wrote a cookbook. True. Correct. Yes, it was called Cooking to Save Your Life by Abhijit Banerjee, which I'm also probably mispronouncing. My apologies. Mike, celebrated rapper Eminem wrote a cookbook. False. Correct. Jill, celebrated rapper Coolio wrote a cookbook. True. Correct. Mike, celebrated rapper 2 Chains wrote a cookbook. False. Incorrect. No, he really did. Jill, wow. the 2 Chains cookbook came packaged with a 2 Chains album. True. Correct. Mike, the 2 Chains cookbook came with a disclaimer from his record label. True. Correct. Yep. Use of these recipes is at your own risk. Universal Music Group is not responsible <laughs> for the outcome of any recipe. Jill, one of 2 Chains recipes is for teriyaki salmon. True. Correct. Mike, the first instruction in Two Chain's recipe for teriyaki salmon is put on your Versace apron. True. Correct. Jill, Versace makes an apron. False. Incorrect. No, they really do. Mike, a Versace apron retails on its website for $400. True. Correct. Jill, but it comes with oven mitts. True. Correct. Mike, it also comes with a set of dish towels. Uh, false. Incorrect. Jill, oh, it also comes with a chef's hat. True. Incorrect. No, that would be ridiculous. All right, I want to thank Mike and Jill as Helen tabulates the final score. Helen, are you ready to announce the winner of today's episode? 
I'm ready to announce it. <laughs> I am at the end of the game. Jill Twist has 14 points and Mike Kaplan has nine and a half points. A very high scoring game for both of you, but congratulations, Jill. You are the facting champion on Go Fact Yourself. Jill, what will you do with your championship? Um, I'm going to sneak a little bit of hot chocolate in my coffee. <laughs> Ooh, the psychedelics of the children's <laughs> book world. All right. We're going to wrap things up by giving everyone here a chance to mention or promote anything they might like. Jill Twist, where are you up to? Where can people find you? Um, you can find me on social media at my name. It's Jill Twist. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us, Jill Twist. Mike Kaplan, where can people find you and what you're up to? Uh, you can do that by a similar way. Mike Kaplan, M-Y-Q-K-A-P-L-A-N. On social media, you can search for my albums on Spotify or whatever platform you'd like to get stand-up albums at. My most recent one is called AKA. I do have a new Drybar special out on the Drybar comedy app. You can get a free month of Drybar by using the promo code Mike Kaplan, spelled that way, at the drybarcomedy.com website for a monthly subscription. And and I have the two podcasts you mentioned at the top of the show that I won't repeat. And I also have a Substack newsletter I send out once a week, mikekaplan.substack.com. And you can subscribe for even more. And also most of that information is at mikekaplan.com. Sorry, I said it all. <laughs> no, I appreciate you doing. I'm very impressed with how prolific you are and on many, many platforms. Mike Kaplan, everybody. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, my hosting partner is the lovely, the talented, the Helen, the Hong. Helen Hong, where can people find you? You can stream my comedy album, Well Hong on Amazon Prime, Apple TV+, YouTube, etc., etc. You can also follow me on the socials at funny Helen Hong because we all know at Helen Hong, she's not funny. Nope. Not funny, but you are Helen Hong. And me, you can find me on Twitter at J underscore Keith or on Instagram at jkeith.net, all spelled out. That just leaves me to thank Jill Twist, Mike Kaplan, Rebecca Feldman, Sarah Salzberg, Marv Wolfman, and thank you for listening and supporting our show at MaximumFun.org. I'm J. Keith Van Stratton. Good night. Like what you hear? Come see us live. It's happening again. Go to GoFactorPod.com for our schedule and tickets. Meanwhile, please like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, all at GoFactorPod, update our wiki at GoFactorWiki.Fandom.com, and buy our T-shaped shirt and mug-shaped mug at MaxFunStore.com. And give us a great review on your favorite podcast platform, like blah 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 83 did on Apple Podcasts. He, she, or they said, this is such a fun podcast where you learn random facts. We really enjoy listening to it in the car and testing our knowledge. Even our one-year-old likes it. Thanks, blah, 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 83. And hi, blah, 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 83, Junior. Who's a good party? Ellen? A one-year-old? Wow, I'm impressed. Go Fact Yourself is a panel quiz program devised and produced by Jim Newman and J.K. Van Stratton. Comes to you via transcription from various homes across the world. Questions were compiled by the Trivia Industrial Complex. We are produced in collaboration with Maximum Fun. Maximum Fun senior producer is Laura Swisher. Associate producer and editor and White House Bunny is Julian Burrell. Our show engineer and White House rescue dog is Dave McKeever. Our theme song and incidental music were written and performed by Jonathan Green. Research assistance provided by Adam Needif. Quiz assistance provided by Clint Tauscher and Bart Gold. Promotional graphics by Eric Tran. Added support from Dave Bianchi and Christine Vallada. Special thanks to Brenda Bowen at The Book Group. Amy Burgess at the NYU Tisch School of the Arts. Rachel Scheinkin, Jose Vega, David Lindsay Abair, Abby Crutchfield, Brandon J. Carr, Pete Cunningham, and Bob Skeer. I've been Helen Hong. Let's go look at Spider-Man. And the 
25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee? Bees and spiders. <gasps> oh, my! Maximum Fun. A worker-owned network of artist-owned shows supported directly by you.